His voice is intense, passionate, but his guitar burns down the house. Buddy Guy plays like a wizard on a black-and-white polka-dotted Stratocaster. Sometimes he wears a shirt to match, a showman top to bottom. He used to throw his guitar in the air or slide the strings across his backside or play it one-handed over his head. He's the guy who inspired Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and Mick Jagger and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and a hundred other rock and blues guitarists. You know, I just, you know, I just live by trying to make everybody happy, and that's almost impossible. But I go after you. If you come to see me, I'm coming after you with my guitar. If I can't get you with the guitar, I do tricks with the guitar. And sometimes they ask me, how did you do that? Because I didn't, I didn't even know myself. I play with a pick, and all of a sudden I can make this pick disappear and be playing with my fingers. And I don't know how I did that. Somebody had to tell me. I said, what do you mean? He said, you disappeared that pig. I said, did I? I don't know. Buddy Guy started turning heads with his guitar in the 1950s. And as I record this episode, he's still playing over 100 dates a year at the age of 83. Only now, he carries a great burden keeping the blues alive when the blues legends he grew up on and nearly all the players of his own generation are gone. Buddy Guy is stoking the flame on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. He's considered a Chicago bluesman, but he was born in Letsworth, Louisiana. His parents were sharecroppers, and they named him George, but he was always Buddy. When Mary Jordan sat down with Buddy Guy to talk to him about his life at the 2019 Academy of Achievement Summit in New York, she started the conversation by asking him about his childhood in the cotton fields and whether he remembered the feeling of working in the hot sun. What do you mean, do I remember feeling I woke up hot and went to sleep hot? We didn't have no electricity. 
The only hour we had, if you sit still, even churches, you had a little fan. You do this for yourself. And, I, and then my mom and grandmom and them, we didn't have, we had to use a wood stove. And can you imagine her cooking over the stove and the temperature is already 104? And she's trying to bake bread in this oven with this stove is red hot then. And I don't know how they did. His family lived in a typical Louisiana shotgun house. Called that because according to lore, if the doors were open and you shot a gun at the front door, the bullet would go through the house, straight out the back door, and keep on going. They never did close the door. They never, we never had a lock on the door because you couldn't pay nobody to go in those houses back then and steal something. Matter of fact, there's nothing you could steal. You know, you break in that house and say, you didn't have to break in this walk-in. It wasn't nothing to take. So How many people were living in your house? Well, it's, it was five of us, and, and, and the mom and dad had make seven. Mm-hmm. So did you listen to the radio? What was the music in your life? Uh, my dad got, we raised enough cotton to get a radio. I was like at least 16 or 17 years old. See, we didn't have no electricity, and the first radios we got then was a battery radio, and if it was any kind of clouds, any kind of rain, you couldn't hear nothing but brrr, and it was like what they call static. Only time you could hear it real well was on a, a very clear day. And sometimes not even then. But Buddy Guy heard music, of course, before the radio arrived. And he loved it so much that he would pluck rubber bands just to make sound. Then he got a little more ambitious and created a simple instrument, sometimes called a diddly bow, using tacks and other things he found around the house. And uh, I'd start stripping the screen out the window to make a guitar string. So I'd take a lighter fluid can and make four holes in it and try to make a little homemade guitar. The it's, little sound. Did it sound through. pretty good? Uh, I don't know if it sounded pretty good, but something about it kept me messing with it. And I just wanted to hear some noise. And I remember my dad's friend used to come by and see me the rest of the kids would be able, if you were able to get a toy for Christmas, I didn't want that. All I wanted to do was hear something. And I remember one of my dad's friends telling my dad, that boy, it would be something else if he had a guitar. There was no money for a guitar, though, at least not for a few more years. Instead, Buddy got his chance only when a friend of his father's dropped by at Christmas, the only holiday his family took off from working to celebrate. Drinking was only on Christmas. No more drinking until next Christmas. And that was like a gallon of wine and a case of beer at your house. Then they would go to his house, go to my house, and the party was over until next Christmas. So when the guitar player got full of wine and beer, everybody fell off to sleep, and I got a chance to put my hand on this guitar. And you were how old? Uh, eight, nine. And when you two. put your hand on that guitar, were you able to play? Because you never no, you no, never. No, had I just made noise. Well, actually, when I first, when my dad first got me the one from that guy, um, my sister and brother used to make my mom run me out of the house because it was like a bunch of bees. That's what I sounded like, you know, ling 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 Get him out of here, get him out. But guess what, my sister, she's 92 years old. She tell me now, you can come in now. <laughs> Down through the woods. Yeah, 
Day one, that's what I was trying to learn because I, I was listening to Lightning Hopkins and uh, Arthur Kudupnam and they had one little juke joint of hot state this big, but it was big and that had a jukebox in there. And you could punch the record for a nickel and it wasn't no such a thing as age limit then. We could go there if you was five years old, if you were tall enough to put your nickel in there. And it, it would come up like the old record players and play the seven, eight and John Lee Hooker's Boogie Children and uh, uh, I forget the name of some of Lightning Hopkins and Lionel Johnson. Lionel Johnson made a famous record called Tomorrow Night. And I was be listening to that, trying to figure out what they was doing. Because there wasn't no TV or nothing like that. You'd Where was to... the jukebox that you put the nickel in? Near one... your house? No, no, but, but back then, you know, it's, you could count the people had a car. We'd walk, and I mean, it would be like, 10, 12 miles. I done got so good once I could walk on a railroad and, and don't fall off the rail to keep from walking in the, in the, in the gravel and the cross ties because we didn't have to have shoes to wear. So we you walked 10 miles to the jukebox to oh, put yeah. a nickel in to hear some music. Oh, yeah. that was, that's all on the weekends though, maybe a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Back then, it's, uh, you didn't have time to go nowhere. You had to go to the field when sunrise and you come out to feel when sun go down. When did you leave school? Uh, I graduated out of eighth grade, and that's, that's how the schools went, and that's just during my teenage years. In other words, they didn't have no school. We went to school in the church, and they finally built the three-room school, and that's when I finally got to the eighth grade, and that was it anyway. In other words, you couldn't, it wasn't no high school. Did then. you want to go to high school? I wanted to learn uh, uh, more than uh, my, you know, the parents and grandparents would tell us, you know, if you can, if you can learn anything to get out of here, get away. Did you want to get away? Uh, well, you, what you don't know don't hurt you. You know, I didn't know it was it was a better life than what it was until you saw it. And uh, my parents. And everybody out there, white and black, was eat to live and live to eat. My mom and dad, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't know what a, uh, a bank was. They would take that dollar, two dollars, and put it in a pillowcase. And like I said, the, the door of the house was open all the time. And you couldn't pay nobody to go take it. It was a pretty racist time that you grew up in. You were born in the 30s. 36. And, you know, the 50s, what were they like? Oh, uh, everybody was the same, and you got some white people down there that I know are those kids' parent who was the sharecropper's owners. They still living, and they used to bring the white kid to my parent house for, for us to play with him, because I was like maybe four, five, six years older than him, while they slept in the afternoon. And we could play with him until he got 12 or 13. Then they would say, y'all can't play together no more. You can't play because they're white and you're not? Mm-hmm. How do you think racism 
and what you saw in your own life influenced your music? I don't think race had nothing to do with my music. I was just in love with the sound of music. But racism definitely did have something to do with where he could stay while he was on the road, and how often his music was played on radio, and how much money he was likely to bring in, as he quickly found out when he started meeting older black musicians, people like Muddy Waters and Little Walter. And Little Walter's from Louisiana, not too far from me, and I didn't know that. And the first thing he asked me was, can you buy me a half a pint? I'm saying, you make it hit records and ask me to buy you half a pint? And I think I had a dollar, and a half a pint of jam was 90 cents, and I gave it to him. And I said, now, you ask me for half a pint, is you getting paid for being uh, making all these hit records? No, they was being ripped off. And this was my learning. Like I learned how to play the guitar, I just watched them. I'm like saying, wait a minute, is this what you want to do now? Because I thought it was much better than that. But it wasn't, you know. They was like, you play well enough, you might get three or four or six dollars. Or if you play well enough, you got a good drunk or a good looking woman. And that was your pay for the next morning you woke up. You said, I must have played real right because this good looking woman fell for me or I got drunk while I hope somebody buying me a drink. And then you saw that these other musicians who were really outstanding were not making money. So how did you take care of yourself financially? Oh, I went to work days. You know, I, I knew how to go to work because when I left uh, Louisiana, I was working at LSU. And my job is still open because I didn't, I didn't walk away. I told them when I was going to quit. What was your job? What were you doing? Uh, they called me a utility man. Whatever they asked me to do, I had to do it. And what would that be? Drive a truck or tractor, pump gas or wash a car or whatever. You wonder if any of those students at Louisiana State recognized him in the clubs on stage at night in Baton Rouge. Same thing when he moved to Chicago at the age of 21. He got a job there driving a tow truck and played guitar by night. Some nights for $2, $3. And my first home, uh, the guy let me have the home and promised that I gave him a down payment and I took, took the, uh, the checks from driving the tow truck and lived off the 3 and $4 a night that I was playing for guitar. Was there a moment when you really hit it big? Uh, after the British started playing blues, I think the British did all black people who were playing blues a, a, a big lift because they came back here. And uh, do you remember the television show called Shindig? They was trying to get the Stone to do Shindig and they said, I'll do it if you let me bring Muddy Water. And they said, who in the hell is that? And Mick Jagger got offended, say, you mean to tell me you don't know who Muddy Waters is and we named ourselves after this famous record, Rolling Stone. You became pretty good friends with Mick Jagger, right? We still is. He owned my latest album, playing the harmonica. He wouldn't sing because he said, oh my God, my voice ain't strong as buddies no more. Wow. He's playing the harmonica on the last album, The Blues is Alive and Well. first degree You got away with murder And I'll never be free 
British did so much for the black musician in America. Ike and Tina, BB, and all of them. They come and got us, and as I said, some people were like, who in the hell is that? And they kept telling people who we were. And they didn't say, this is our music, this is, this is blues music. The, the Muddy Waters, the Howling Wolf, they just told the truth. Which they was trying to get Elvis Presley not to tell it when he came out, because he was doing Arthur Crudup. They might not like what I'm saying, but he was doing a lot of Arthur Crudup stuff, and his biggest record was Big Mama Thornton, Hound Dog. And uh, they, didn't want, they didn't want the white kids to get familiar with what was going on, but slow, slowly they was going through Mississippi and picking up Little Richard, Fats Domino, and it was people like that. What was it like to be the opening act of the Rolling Stones? Well, let me say this first. You know, before they got famous, I was in the chess studio doing a record called My Time After Why, and they came there to do an audition, and they brought them in my studio like this, and I'm like looking at you and looking at them, and I'm angry. Like, who is this you bringing in on my session, you know? And it was the Stones, Muddy Waters, that helped them bring the instruments upstairs so they could play an audition for the chess record. When you heard him play, were you still mad at him? I don't think I heard him that day. When I heard him, they was getting bigger than bubblegum. That's when they could start telling people who Ike and Tina Turner was, who BB, all the, all the people. And not changing something, the first time I went to England was 1965. You know who was my valet and running with my guitar? Rod Stewart. Yeah. Because I was there, I went there by myself, and there was a group called the Yardbirds. I was playing with them, and we just played a few clubs in, in England. So, did Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart, these guys, got it that you had a gift with the guitar? When I went to England, Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page said they slept in a car, a van, to see me play. And I had the uh, Strat, and the first thing they said, they didn't think a strat could play blues, and we laugh about that now. You know, he says, and then all of them went and bought a strat. Because they thought the strat academy was for like a country in western, what we was calling out of, uh, you know, Tennessee and Texas and places like that. But when they saw me do it, they said, my God, we got to get a strat. Here's how Eric Clapton described the extent of Buddy Guy's influence on him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when Guy was inducted in 2005. Buddy personified all that the modern blues man needed to be. His technique was and is unique. And I remember in 65 when he first came to England and played at the Marquee Club and I was finally able to see him in person. In the flesh he was earth shattering. His style on every level was fantastic. Doing all the things we would later come to associate with Jimi Hendrix, playing with his teeth, his feet and behind his head. 
he brought the house crashing down. But beyond all that, it was his actual playing that got through to me. With only a drummer and a bass player behind him, he gave her a thundering performance, delivering the blues with finesse and passion in a way I had never heard before. And incidentally started me thinking that a trio was a pretty good lineup for a band. All in all, everything about that night was deeply profound for me. The blues was clearly alive and well, and it looked good too, for as well as being the real thing, musically, Buddy was a star. His suit, his hair, his moves, his sunburst strat, everything was sharp and perfect. He was for me what Elvis probably was for most other people. My course was set and he was my pilot. And here's a little snippet of Buddy Guy's acceptance speech that night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you don't think you got the blues, just keep living. Did you ever meet Jimi Hendrix? He canceled a gig to see me when, he first, when I first made it to New York, because I always told, I was told, you'll never make it unless you play New York City. So I finally got to the Newport Jazz Festival in 1967, and then there's a, a club in New York called me in there. And I'm putting on a show with the guitar behind my back, behind my head, and somebody said, that's Jimi Hendrix. So I said, what the hell, who is that, you know? And he had a real, real tape. We got this on tape at my club. He had a real, real tape. Wasn't the little ones like you, you could just put nine on C, and he was plugging it. And he said, I just want to tape what you're, seeing, what you're doing because I canceled a gig to make sure I see you. You influenced so many of those people, including Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix. Did you, would you see things that you taught them when they were playing? I didn't look at it that way, you know. We all got something from someone because when I heard B.B. King and uh, Guitar Slim, when I saw Guitar Slim, he was wild and crazy. He had a strat and uh, he didn't have a strap on it. He had a fish line coming across his shoulder for a strap for the guitar. And so I said, well, if I learn how to play, I want to play like B.B. King, but I'm going to act like Guitar Slim. And what did that mean to you, act like him? You, you, you know, even now, guitar players will come. Some of them is not famous. They will ask me, what do they need to do? I say, I don't know, man. You just keep playing. Because each time I go to the stage now, I feel like, man, you got to do something to get some attention or make somebody pay attention to you. And sometimes, matter of fact, during every night I play, I have to walk off the stage to the audience and play. And I do that. And now people will look at me. If I don't go off that stage, they'll say, maybe you wasn't feeling good last night because you didn't come see about us. So I don't got brand new with that now. When you say you walk off the stage, you go right into the audience? Yes. Why, yeah, do, you, why do you do that? Uh, I'll be trying to get attention, and, and, and that's the only, a lot of times that's the only time I get a standing ovation. As soon as I make one step off there, I don't have to get completely off the stage. If I do this, everybody will stand up. Now, why is that? I don't know. But sometimes I go out there, like if you sitting there, I'll come by, and I'll hold a note, and let you strike the guitar, and it's right. So I take that to kids and older people too, and matter of fact, some people was in there last night as we was getting their awards, and the guy said, 
I saw you, blah, 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 blah. And do you know you took my wife's hand and hit your guitar? And she ain't never forgot it. So you were one of the greatest guitarists of the century, really. You've influenced some... I don't accept that. Why not? Because they got so many better than me. A lot of people talk about how without you, uh, they wouldn't be. Eric Clapton says that. Um, Jimmy Page says that. You're a giant in your field. What are you most proud of as the kid that grew up in the South, picking cotton in the sun, to traveling the world with some of the greatest musicians? When you look at that journey, what do you think? I think I've been blessed by something. Somebody looked down on me, I guess, and say, I'm going to pick you out to try to uh, do something because I didn't give up. You know, I tell people now, if you give up, if you're a prize fighter and uh, the other your opponent hits you and you just lay down, you can't win. You got to get up and go again. Do you believe in God? Yes, ma'am. That's why I came up in the church. Oh, yeah. Oh, my mamas and grandmamas and papas and all of them, that's all they did. You know, this, and my mother would be hollering and praying some nights. I, she used to get, I used to try to calm her down with that, yeah. I mean, I wonder, do you think it's God that gave you a gift in those fingers of I yours? don't know nobody else could give it to me because somebody like you didn't give it or him. Y'all didn't give it to me. Somebody gave it to me. Downhill the river Meets the sea And in this sticky heat I feel you Open up to me Love Comes out of nowhere, baby Just like a hurricane And it feels like rain And it feels like rain I don't care how good you are or how well you can sing. It's just a matter of luck and time and the right people see you and you play the right note and be at the right place at the right time. And there you are. Because I say, a lot of guitar players, few of them still around, looks at me and say, what do I need to do, buddy? I say, damn if I know. I just kept playing. To make that bridge tonight, baby, across Lake Constantine, and it feels like rain, and it feels like rain. What's your distinction with a guitar? What do you think is your legacy in music? I can a fool. Yeah, if I'm asking you right, I can a fool and. Uh, you know, just my playing and my singing ain't the best, because I know people better than me, but I think I can go out there and get attention, which I mentioned earlier. So when I get ready to play a lick, if I play a lick, I can't stand it like B.B. King and Eric and don't let it affect my whole body and head. If I hit it and I look at somebody else and I see them, it's like, that got me, I'm finna go after you deeper. 
you know, that's like going out in the water. If you can go this deep, you can go this deep. So I just take a note and sometimes I take it and hit it and I'll try to look at somebody out of my eye. I say, well, maybe you didn't get it that way. I'll flip the guitar and start playing it this way and that same person will stop, stop up and jump up and start doing that. Say, I done seen somebody play it like that, but not like this. Well, I have to ask you about the blues. Some people are worried that the blues is, is not, doesn't have a great future. What do you think? It looks like that. But blues been treated like a stepchild ever since I've been at it, you know. But when we had the AM stations, they played it. They played all music, a gospel, a jazz, a blues, and there wasn't no such a thing as rock and all that then. Everything was R&B. But now you don't hardly hear blues unless you got satellite. How would you define the blues? What, are the, what is the blues to you? The blues is everyday life. If you listen to the lyrics, if it haven't happened to you, it's somebody you might know it have happened to. Like when B.B. King sang The Thrill Is Gone, maybe you never had nothing like that happen to you, but somebody said, I lost my wife or my husband, and that was my thrill. That's what he meant. The thrill is gone. So it's about everyday life. If you're having a bad day or something, in the death of a friend. Is there some tune that you go to? Is there some favorite thing that lifts your spirits when you're down? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, at B.B. King's funeral, you know, they, they just looked at me and they had a rope that it, you could only get so close to his casket. And the uh, funeral home told me, said, now you can go over there. And they raised the rope and I went over and you know, him and I made a record, um, uh, like, a, uh, like a gospel, thank the Lord. And at the end of the record, he says, uh, you my buddy, even when I'm gone, when I'm pushing up daisies, you're still my buddy. And I know he would have smiled, and I forgot to tell him, when they put you in a vault, now you can't push you up daisies. And that's exactly what I said looking at him. I said, I forgot to tell you that you can't uh, send up daisies no more because they can't come through the concrete, you know, on that. And I know he would have laughed if I'd, if I'd have told him that before he died. You got that right, B. I love the life we live, buddy. I spend a many nights listening to you play. Thanks a lot. You ain't done so bad yourself, old boy. 
I'm pushing up daisies, don't forget. You're still my buddy. When people say you're the last of a kind, what do they mean? Buddy Guy is the last of a kind. I know they say that, but you know, who knows about music? If they had said B.B. Muddy, T-Bone Walker, and it was the last of the kind, it wouldn't be no Buddy Guy. Because when, when I first heard hip-hop, I thought ain't nobody going to hear that because these kids was cursing and using some profane. And you ain't going to believe it. I can go to the stage right now and, and sing a blues because they said that I know some of the, the biggest hip-hoppers out there. They said they got their ideas from blues guys. Do you know there's a lyric? I'm going to sing it. I might sing it tonight. It said there's a lyric of old blues guy, old and muddy water, and I made a lyric about my sister went to milk and she didn't know how. She grabbed a bull instead of a cow. Mama, mama, you better come here quick because my sister milking the bull body and don't answer that. But the hip hoppers will answer that. <laughs> so when they start cursing and selling more records than I ever thought I would sell, I'll say, maybe I need to curse a little bit on a blues record and ask could sell it. Because my biggest record I ever wrote was Damn Right, I Got the Blues, and the Damn Right is, 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 is right on top. You used to couldn't say that. They would beep that when the AM station was playing blues. They wouldn't let you say that. A hundred years from now, if music's still around, I think blues, the notes will still be heard. You're damn right I got the blues From my head down to my shoes You're damn right I got the blues From my head down to my shoes moments that prompt you to write music? Uh, I, I, I didn't know, you know, I was dumb to the fact about writing music. You know, I, I still don't read music, you know, I, I'm self-taught. I don't read a line in music. And uh, the writing thing I learned, like I said earlier, by, by, by watching these guys who should have been making a lot of money for writing and all that, B.B. King, in his early days, I would buy every record he had from, it was at the, 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 the 78 and the 45. And you would look down there, written by King, not, not King, it's called T-U-B-A, and I ain't gonna never forget it. And when I got a chance to meet him, the first thing I asked him after we started talking, I said, who's Tubby? He said, I don't know. That was somebody that had took the song he wrote and was get, uh, uh, getting, collecting for the songwriting. So a, a lot of us didn't know nothing about that was a lot of money being made for writing a song. Who did you have the most fun jamming with? Oh my God, that's a good question. 
got a gym with a lot of people, and uh, uh, including George Benson, which is a great jazz player. By the way, if you ever meet him, in 1967, I went on tour of Europe with Sarah Vaughan, him, Jim Hall, uh, uh, Bonnie Castle. I was the only blues guy there, and I'm like, what am I going to do? And this is all jazz. And they looked at me and said, yeah, but the blues guitar players making more money than the jazz guitar players. Man, said, just play because we're going to pick up something from you. So, uh, of course, when B.B. King called me up or Muddy Waters called me up, I had goose pumps, pimps all over my top of my head, all over my neck and stuff like that. And I was so nervous. I still get nervous. Sometimes I cry. You when, cry because? Uh, I don't think I should be in that kind of company because they're no longer with us. But I say, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be listening, not playing. And they wouldn't let me get away with that. When he found out I could play, they would say, Come in. I mean, get on up here now. You know, that's what they wouldn't just tell me, will you mind playing or something like that? It's come on up here. Play, especially B.B. King. Get down, sit down, don't go nowhere. Yep. Yeah. And I learned a lot from them. Here's another time B.B. King and Buddy Guy played together that you might remember at a White House event in honor of the blues in 2012. That evening's performance made news because the two legendary players cajoled then-President Barack Obama into joining them on the mic. When I went into the White House, uh, we, we, we were playing for him, and uh, one of the people there said, you know, he's from Chicago. If y'all sang Sweet Home Chicago, he might come up. Then everybody was afraid to say anything. I said, well, I'll call him. And we started playing, and B.B. was sitting there, and, I said, and he'd come up to thank us for, for playing. And I said, wait a minute, don't go nowhere. You got to sing Sweet Home Chicago. And he sung a verse. How's his voice? Well, I don't know. I don't make, I don't, you know, even with musicians, you can't get me to say good or bad about that, you know, so, but he did it. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you sing it out green, so you have started something, you got to keep it up now. You can do it. That wasn't Buddy Guy's first trip to the White House. He went in 2003 as well, when George W. Bush awarded him the National Medal of Arts. He also remembers one time when Bill Clinton approached him, just before the Kennedy Center Honors. He just came over and said, I came to talk about you. And I said, what do you know about me? And he went up and started talking about the farm and all that, what, what I just told you I come from. I don't know if he had read the book. I don't even know if the book was out there. What was going through your head? I wanted to say this, and somebody talked me out of it. I wanted to say, you know, on the farm, you have outhouses, if you know what that is. I say, this is a long way from the outhouse to the White House. 
But somebody said, don't say that. And I didn't say that. I kept, I kept that. You could have said that. <laughs> oh, I know I would have got a laugh if I'd have said that. Because if you're out there picking cotton and know your parents can't send you to get an education and, and a dream comes up that you're in the White House, that's special. Very special. Because a lot of people before me should have went there, before me. And they didn't make it. What a joy to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Buddy Guy, who inherited the blues tradition, kept it alive and continues to take it to new heights. He's the owner of a Chicago blues club called Buddy Guy's Legends. And he's the author of a memoir, when I left home. In addition to the other awards we've mentioned already, Buddy Guy is the winner of eight Grammy Awards, including one for Lifetime Achievement. He spoke to Washington Post correspondent Mary Jordan for the Academy of Achievement in 2019, a year after he received a special hometown honor. They just named, on December the 8th last year, they named the highway out there in Lexwood, Louisiana, where I was born, after me. And when they came up with the idea, they went to the governor, and it was 97 to 0 to give it to me. So I said, give it to me, because my mother told me before she died. She said, son, if you got some flowers for me, give them to me now so I can smell them. I'm not going to smell them on that grave. So I said, if y'all going to name that highway after me, let me see it. And they got it up. The highway that's named after you, where does it run? Is it along the way that you used to walk to the jukebox? Yeah, exactly. Can't you tell I got it? One last thing. Do yourself a favor and listen to our episodes about other legendary guitar slingers. We've got B.B. King, Jimmy Page, Johnny Cash, and Vince Gill. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. Our show is funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. Misery and pain Still coming on strong As long as I'm breathing My heart is still beating I've got my story to tell I know the Alive and well, yes, it is. Blue. Good morning, Mr. Blue.